Welcome to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Good morning to all of you joining us locally by radio and streaming online. We appreciate you tuning in. Today is Sunday, January 20th, 2019, and I'm your host, Hertzie Hertz. I'm here in studio with Joseph, soon-to-be Dr. Adam, soon-to-be Dr. Aaron, and Dr. David. This is an open conversation, and we encourage listener interaction with your phone calls to 952-946-6205, your emails to radio at mnatheist.org, tweet us at at Atheist Talk, or check out our Facebook page, Atheist Talk. The phone number is only available when we are live, but you can always check out our email or social media, whether we're live or you're listening to the podcast. Genetics! Sci-fi and comic books have given us so many ideas as to what genetics are. With the recent news out of China, this has sparked our imaginations again. Adam, Aaron, and Dr. Dave will be here to let us know what we can actually expect. And for patrons, we'll be doing an extra segment as well. Adam, Aaron, David, Joseph, welcome to Atheist Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um... This morning, uh, as uh, as Hershey just mentioned uh, in the intro, it was reported uh, a couple of months ago that a researcher in China had successfully been able to modify a viable human embryo. Um, could one of you talk to us about that? And amongst other things, I'm curious, has there been any verification that he succeeded? What was the trait he was aiming to edit? And uh, any thoughts around his research? Sure, I can talk a, l- a little bit about that. So. Um, what was done was a Chinese researcher named Jian Kui He uh, successfully altered the genome of a human embryo that was produced by in vitro fertilization using a, a technique called CRISPR-Cas9, which allows us to make very precise genetic changes in a living cell. That embryo was implanted into a woman and split and two identical twin girls were born sometime in late October or November, early November of last year. What was done was to inactivate a gene called CCR5 in in the embryo. And so the twin girls that were born have mutations in CCR5. One of them had two, two mutations, one in each copy of the CCR5 gene and one carried just one mutation. And the intent of uh, Professor Hu was to confer resistance to HIV infection in these children. The world first learned of this in late November at a conference in Hong Kong. There's been no peer-reviewed publication uh, or any verification that it really happened. Uh, what we know is what was presented at that conference in Hong Kong. Um, since then, um, this experiment's been widely condemned um, for, for many reasons we can get into. But that's a summary of what's happened. And I should say that Dr. Huss also said that there's a, um, a third child that was born um, who underwent the same procedure. Hmm. Um, at some point in uh, this morning, I wanted to get into the uh, ethics. It actually wasn't going to be my first topic, but maybe uh, maybe with the rest of the segment, we could explore that. Because whenever I hear about new technologies, it's probably just my makeup, I just get really excited. I, my mind just starts jumping with all the wonderful things that, that we can do. When I first heard about gene editing, my mind jumped to, 
while we can tackle cancer, heart disease, sickle cell anemia, Tay-Sachs, diabetes, oh, we can make plants that are disease-resistant and insect-resistant and all those things. Then I was talking to folks at uh, at work, and a couple of, of them, it seemed like the only thing that their minds could jump to was the fears and and uh, and uh, the problems surrounding this. So could, uh, could you comment about what are some of the legitimate ethical concerns and fears surrounding this, and what do you think are probably... Um, inaccurate fears and things that we probably should not be concerned about. Would anyone like to tackle that? So, as with any technology, it's always worthwhile to think about what what what's going on and whether there are any things to, to worry about and not, and then also just take a look and make sure that you use it, use the technology well. In the case of human germline editing, like in, that was, that proposed, that happened in China, um, in that case, one thought is that those future generations will always also con- carry whatever edits were made, and so the thought is, if we're continuously passing this forward, what are what are potential outcomes? And then, could there be the potential for then we are start selecting for more and more genes that confer different sort of traits that aren't necessarily health based? And so those would be kind of the big fears going on forward. Um, I know there are some, probably some misconceptions that people jump to who don't know a lot. And I know some of them are like, we're putting foreign chemicals in people's food. And is this really stable? Do these people know what they're doing? Has it been fully tested? It's unnatural. And well, the thing is, is usually these foods go through much more testing than say conventional methods of agriculture would. Oh, you're talking about genetically modified foods? Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's that to take into account that, yes, they've been heavily studied. Um, they're very stable. So I've seen, uh, concerns posted online about the genes that we put in the food being able to jump out of the food and be absorbed by the person that's about as likely as you learning how to do photosynthesis after eating a lot of kale. (laughs) So... Uh, that's not a concern. And then the idea that there's these unnatural chemicals or that you're putting the pesticides inside the food. Well, bugs have very different guts than we do. And so it's studied for safety. And oftentimes when you make GM foods that produce their own pesticides, you need less pesticide overall. And yeah, I think that about sums it up. Professor David? Yeah. So, so some of the the great things that you talked about earlier really are happening and coming to fruition. One of the things that I do at the University of Minnesota is direct the Center for Genome Engineering. And it's a group of faculty members and laboratories who are all using new technologies for gene delivery and gene editing to enhance research, to develop new therapies for disease, such as cancer and the genetic diseases you mentioned, improved agriculture, by making uh, better crops and food animals. Um, And so this new gene editing technology that's out there, it really is starting to have an impact and it can be a great thing. What was done in China was different than anything that we're researching at the University of Minnesota where this gene editing technology was used to alter the DNA of um, living people who were... um, in the germline who were born 
And that was fundamentally different than anything that's happened so far in the world. And so it was quite a shock for all of us to hear about it. And I think we should keep in mind that what was done was a research project on humans, so it's human subjects research. And the reason it w it's controversial is many norms of human subject research were violated in this, in this experiment. So mm -hmm. it's very different. Um, and I think it will go down as a big mistake and a scandal in human subjects research. So human subjects research is very, uh, people have thought about it for decades. There have been mistakes in the past. There are certain fundamental norms, such as informed consent. Is it medically necessary? Is there danger to the subject, the research subjects? Mm -hmm. All of these things were um, potentially violated in the work that was done in China, and that's why people are upset about it, in part. Not just the idea that we might be altering the human genome, but the way in which the research was carried out in China. It was also done in secret. We, we found out about after the birth of these children, there was no public input, no um, input from stakeholders who might want a technology like this. So uh, I think that's really why it was widely condemned. And um, most scientists that I, that I know who have thought about this aren't necessarily against altering the human uh, germline using a technology like this. But the way in which it was done in China was wrong, it was premature. There's, just as an example, the gene that was inactivated, CCR5, <clears throat> was intended to confer resistance to HIV. But um, physicians and scientists who study that gene think that it may also make people who have that a mutation in that gene more susceptible to West Nile virus and the flu. So um, things like this can't just be um, done in the absence of any input. Um, ha there has to be a lot more thought put into it. So, thank you very much. I did. Uh, I did not know about all those concerns and and uh, and uh, the ethical implications of what uh, the researcher has done. What uh, sort of um, protocols and things do we have in the United States uh, to avoid such problems? In the United States right now, the human germline editing is not allowed at all, and uh, it looks like Congress is looking to renew that as well at the moment. Um, so that that's that is already in place, and so legally you cannot go through with something with this kind of experiment. Of, yeah. What what uh, is allowed? Uh, so there are a few FDA clinical trials for uh, human gene therapies, which would be editing somatic tissue, so just like adult tissue essentially, and in that case, that's not passed on into future generations, and um, so that kind of editing could help with several different types of diseases and is a very like useful way to go forward for certain disease types. And in the case of plants? And yeah, so we there is you are allowed to uh, engineer plants. They need to go through rigorous testing of course before they reach the public, but there you can edit the plants. All right. Well, with that, we will take our first commercial break. Please stay with us. We'll, we'll be talking to soon-to-be Dr. Adam, soon-to-be Dr. Aaron, and Dr. David. Welcome back to, eight, to AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in to Atheist Talk, and I'm your host, Hertzie Hertz, talking here with Joseph, soon-to-be Dr. Adam, soon-to-be Dr. Aaron, and Dr. David.
Atheist Talk is produced with the funding from Minnesota Atheists and Cucumbers Restaurant in Edina, Minnesota. Please consider visiting our sponsors, and if you do, let them know that you appreciate their support of Atheist Talk. If you'd like to advertise on the program and help keep us on the air, please contact us at radio at mnatheist.org. As for the here and now, if you'd like to get involved in the conversation with Adam, Aaron, and Dr. David, Joseph, and I, this morning you can call us at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, tweet us at at Atheist Talk, or check out the Facebook page. So quick question that we probably should have done the first intro, but if you could just go through some quick introductions. Adam? Hello, I'm Adam. I'm a graduate student at the University of Minnesota right now. All right. Aaron? Um, I'm Aaron. I'm an undergraduate at um, University of um, Win- or, sorry, Winona State right now. All right. And Dr. David. I, I'm Dave Largaspata. I'm a professor of pediatrics at the University of Minnesota, and I'm a PhD research scientist doing cancer genetics research, where I'm the associate director for basic sciences of our cancer center called the Masonic Cancer Center, and also direct the um, Center for Genome Engineering at the University of Minnesota. Awesome. Well, I'm just going to hand this back over to Joseph. Thank you, Hertzie. Um Adam, Aaron, David, tell us about your work and how you use gene editing technology and maybe get us a little bit excited about the future. So I work in uh, using gene editing technology for biocontainment. And the idea is that when you make a, gen- a biologically engineered organism, you can then have it that you can then engineer it so that it can't spread into the environment at all. In my case, I'm working on uh, on plants so that they can't reproduce with wild plants. And so, if you were to plant this engineered corn, you could have you could continue to produce seeds as normal. But then, with if it comes in contact with regular corn, the off there would be no offspring that are mixed between the two. Hmm. Aaron. <coughs> Um, in the past, I've done work with talons, which is a type of, uh, which is a tool for gene editing to make edits in zebrafish to um, kind of study the pathways that deal with stress a little bit more. And currently, um, in my lab, I don't work with gene editing tech. I kind of focus more on a um, population of salamanders that keep more juvenile traits into adulthood, and I'm working on studying those and uh, their genes right now that kind of keep them juvenile, but in the future I plan to study more into um, creating new gene editing tech and new techniques for using it. Hmm. Professor? So I I run a cancer research lab at the University of Minnesota, and one of the things about gene editing that's maybe hasn't been emphasized enough is how it's been a huge boon to research and a catalyst for doing new experiments we couldn't do in the past. So using gene editing, it's possible to inactivate or alter the function of genes in many different contexts, many different cell types. Um, We use it to rapidly make genetically modified mice to understand more about gene function. We're using it to try to understand how cancer develops in the first place and how cancer cells acquire their unique uh, characteristics. For example, we're using it to try to figure out how cancer cells metastasize and spread throughout the body, how they develop resistance to the drugs and radiation that we use to treat cancer, 
all of this is be becoming possible uh, much in, in a much um, bigger scale and more rapid manner than it was possible to do before. So that's all because of um, advances in gene editing. So gene editing has many practical applications that, w that you've mentioned, such as the potential to cure people of genetic diseases, the idea that you, we could make genetically modified crops, um, but also it's it's been a, it's really accelerated basic research. Hmm. Now, a few years ago, I first became aware of CRISPR technology, and since then, there have developed other technologies. Um, Aaron, you alluded to one called talons. I see also in my preparation for this, there's something called zinc fingers and sleeping beauty transports. Would any of you, <laughs> indeed, would any of you care to undertake for, for myself and for our listeners, is it possible to understand what these technologies do, what they have in common, and how they might be different from one another? <clears throat> um, talons, zinc fingers, and uh, it's actually the sleeping beauty transposon system are uh, older than CRISPR, at least we've been using them as gene editing tech before we were using CRISPR. And so CRISPR is kind of the hot new thing right now because it's um, shorter and uh, kind of cheaper to do than the other technologies. But the basic idea behind most technologies you use to edit genomes is that you kind of, kind of like you've got a Word document open and you're looking for a specific sentence or a single word, maybe you um, misspelled something and you know you misspelled it, so you need to go find it. And so you hit Control F and you look for that specific word. And so that's kind of what um, these gene editing, these uh, technologies do, is they look for that specific word or phrase in your genome. And then once they find it, uh, it's kind of like put, placing the cursor there and then just backspacing is they can take out that that word. Or you can place the cursor there and insert a new word or phrase. Hmm. What's, what uh, separates CRISPR from talons? So the big difference is basically how they do their control F function. So in the case of CRISPR, you can program a specific sequence using something called RNA. Uh, and then in talons or zinc finger nucleases, uh, they use uh, a protein that will bind to specific sequences of DNA. So it's, the design difference is really just there. The actual final steps and mechanism are pretty similar. Hmm. Yeah, so zinc finger nucleases, talons, which are called tal effector nucleases, and the CRISPR-Cas9 system can all do similar things. Uh, they can they can introduce very specific alterations to the DNA within a living cell in a very specific place. Just that CRISPR-Cas9 is the system that we can use most easily to do that. And as Aaron mentioned, it's the newest one, and it's become widely adopted by many laboratories um, and companies all over the world. Hmm. Um, are you using... Uh, gene editing technology right now, mostly in the area of research. Do you have any um, applications outside of research? Sure. So um, my uh, my lab is involved in a project to um, edit human white blood cells so that we could reintroduce them into a patient and they would seek out and destroy cancer cells 
It's not the main part of my lab's research, but the gene editing technology may make it possible to improve the anti-cancer fight uh, ability of white blood cells called T cells. And in, sorry, and in my case, uh, we're using uh, gene editing technologies in order to control how we spread uh, or how biologically engineered organisms spread in the wild so we could potentially hunt down and lower mosquito populations or invasive species populations. Well, with the promise of lower mosquito populations, we'll return after the break with Adam, Aaron, and Dr. David and Joseph. Please stay with us. I'm Hertzie Hertz, and you're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950. Thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF. I'm your host, Hertzie Hertz, and we're having what I would classify as a fascinating conversation with soon-to-be Dr. Adam, soon-to-be Dr. Aaron, and Dr. Dave. And Joseph, if you'd like to get involved with the conversation, this is the first time I've had this many people in the studio. <laughs> so it's like, all right, and, and, and. <laughs> but if you'd like to get involved in the conversation this morning, you can call us at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, tweet us at at Atheist Talk, or check out the Facebook page, Atheist Talk. I also want to note our dedicated group of volunteers and the generous donations of you, our listeners. You help keep Atheist Talk on the air and in podcast form. And I want to note our donor of the week, which is Cindy. If you're able to help out with the donation, please consider doing so at our Radio Fund page or our Patreon, where you can get extended interviews, where I've already warned our guests that we'll be talking about X-Men. Um, but you can do that at www.patreon.com slash atheisttalk. Minnesota Atheist is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization, and we couldn't do the show without you, and we deeply appreciate your support. Music for Atheist Talk is by composer and member Brent Michael Davis and is used with permission. Please note, all opinions are of the guest and host only and do not necessarily reflect those of Minnesota Atheist as an organization. With all that relevant information out of the way, let's get back to the conversation with Adam, Aaron, Dr. Dave, and Joseph. Uh, so, you are all members of the Genome Writers Guild. Could, uh, could you tell us and our listeners about what that guild is? So, the Genome Writers Guild is a group of members of the public, artists, entrepreneurs, uh, business people, scientists, basically anyone who's interested to come together and not only discuss genome engineering and the future of it and ethics, but also collectively just learn about it and be able to move it. In a, move it forward in a positive way. Uh, what motivated your participation in it? So I, w I happened to come in right around when it was starting, and to me a big motivation was that this is a fantastic technology that can open up doors to many, many new things that are helpful for people, whether through healthcare or through products that are useful for people or many other ways or just environmental cleanup. And if it's if we have such a powerful technology, it is something that we should not only learn about, but then also be able to communicate with the public and be able to take in input from the public. And after all, it affects them. Hmm. Aaron? Um, when I learned about the Genome Writers Guild, I got pretty excited. Um, I come from a small town, and I've kind of always gone to small schools and smaller universities. So um, genetic engineering is kind of less accessible in a smaller environment than it is in a larger environment. And I thought, wow, this is cool. Here's a way to kind of stay updated on things and a group of people to be able to talk to and a way kind of into that field because it's, I find it fascinating. Hmm. Professor? 
So as I mentioned earlier, I use uh, gene editing and uh, gene delivery technologies in the research I do at the University of Minnesota. The Genome Writers, and as an educator, I thought the Genome Writers Guild could be a good way to try to reach out to the public about what gene editing um, is being used for, uh, concerns about it, um, a way also to communicate with uh, um, politicians who might have who might be interested in gene editing. I also have co-founded three biotechnology companies. So Genome Writers Guild, I thought, could also be a conduit where academia, academia could talk to the business world that's interested in biotech. So for example, Genome Writers Guild has been uh, a way for our trainees, so graduate students and postdoctoral fellows, to connect with biotechnology companies in the Midwest. Um, who've, we've had two symposia uh, that the Genome Writers Guild has, has co-sponsored so far. Um, and the business community was represented there as well, and so it was a way for our students to um, make connections, potentially places that they'll work in the future, and also to think about starting their own companies because um, we think biotechnology in Minnesota, the biotech industry, uh, is growing, and there's huge opportunities. As an accountant, I totally approve the idea of, <laughs> of like, starting your own companies, and I'm willing to be hired. Good to know. <laughs> How many people are members of the Genome Writers Guild? We have something on the scale of 50 members right now, and we're, we're always growing. So, of course, if you're interested, please go see our site, genomewritersguild.org. 50 people? 50 people, yes. Okay. Is it located primarily in Minnesota? Uh, we have a pretty large range. It is mostly in the Midwest area, around Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa, though we have a few out in the co on the coast as well, and yeah, those are the ones I can think of. Uh, when was it formed? We're about, we're going to be two years old this summer, this coming summer, so. Okay. <clears throat> so it's acting not only as a disseminator of information, but also as a, a community? Yes. Yeah, that's one of the goals. Okay. And as a it looks like a collector of uh, information and a way to get people chatting with each other. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something. You know, I think in general we, we were um, motivated by the idea that there might be misconceptions in the general public about what gene, gene editing is and what it's being used for, what the potential is. Um, and it, since it's separate from the University of Minnesota, it's a separate organization, um, could speak perhaps in way, uh, to these issues in a way that w wouldn't be um, a good thing or, or permissible um, through, from, th as someone who's at the University of Minnesota. So, um, How successful have you been so far in uh, disseminating information and getting the word out? What's been your experiences with, uh, with media? So one of, our, one of our key things is holding symposia every year. And that a symposia are always directed to be at least par uh, partially about like talking about the science, but also a lot about being able to bring in discussions of the public. So there are, we always have at least one section that is very public oriented based. We've had uh, an author speak before, and many people who are more public 
uh, oriented in that in this field. And then uh, we've also had a satellite event that was successful, and we actually had a few uh, young students actually end up getting really interested in the guild through that. And we're planning to host one in the next coming weeks at Roseville Public Library. So. Hmm. You know, I used to be a civil engineer, and in the field of civil engineering, there's a society called the American Society of Civil Engineers. Um, are there national organizations that are similar that um, across the United States that uh, unite people that are involved in uh, in gene editing research? I think what's unique about our group is that not only are we linking people who are connecting people who are part of the research, but we're also connecting people who are just interested in it, whether you're an artist or a civil engineer or anyone, you can get involved in the Genome Writers Guild and it can kind of, it can bring in everyone. And that's what makes our group unique over other groups that might be connecting people on a, like, simply science level. Right, not just a professional organization. Hmm. Okay. Um, since, uh, since you folks sort of have a bit of a platform this morning, would any of you like to share with our listeners maybe things that you've always wanted to communicate to the general public about what you're researching, what you're doing? I guess, and, and a lot of the, the one thing to think about genetic engineering is that it's similar to any other technology, is that it can, when used correctly, you can get a lot of really good done. And moving forward with that is that one thing that needs to happen is to just actually have the discussion about how to move forward correctly. Um, so I, I really encourage everyone to ask questions whenever they are curious and or are not sure how something works and stay informed and then have that discussion. As for our, my research, I think it's important to notice note that with genetic engineering, we're able to do more and more recently. I think one thing that the new technologies have allowed is that we're no longer copying uh, traits from just nature. We're starting to be able to say, oh, okay, we can make synthetic speciation or something new like that that is not the way nature has done it, but we're using it for good in general. And I think that's, which is what we do with building a bridge, for example. And I think it's important to just note that that's the, where the technology is leading. We're starting to be able to do more and more. Yeah, now that I've had a minute to think about your question, Joseph, uh, the one general thing I would like people to understand is that um, when someone is born, um, they have new alterations that are unique to them. When we domesticate animals and plants for agriculture, we change the, the genome dramatically just because um, we can now make very specific edits that we control doesn't mean that they're inherently dangerous compared to um, the lack of control that's really out there. So genomes, DNA changes all the time. So it's not inherently dangerous when we make an edit to an animal, uh, to, to its genome, and maybe that's a food animal. Mm -hmm. We can now take traits from different breeds and move them together in ways that would take a lot longer to do using traditional breeding, but do in a single step with gene editing technologies. 
So you get an animal that's no different than what you could achieve by breeding, but much faster. And so that doesn't, uh, that's not really a dangerous uh, thing. It's not really, um, uh, you know, we haven't created some kind of Franken food. We've simply achieved what could be achieved by regular uh, breeding a lot faster. So. Um. A good example of the type of, of, of how we have control over this more so than traditional breeding is um, if you think of modern dog breeds nowadays. So there's lots of large dogs that have heart problems, joint problems as side effects of their breeding. There's um, dogs that are more susceptible to certain types of diseases. Uh, people who keep pugs know that they get overheated really easily and they have issues with their faces and breathing. Uh, bulldogs have similar issues. Um, when you genetically modify something, you're not getting all of those other side effects in with it. You're, for the most part, only achieving your target modification. Hmm. You know, <laughs> um, permit me to share something I saw that was kind of funny in a comic. It shows, it was a two-panel comic, and in the first pane, you see a wolf. And the wolf is looking, and he's saying to himself, Huh, humans have food, me hungry, hmm. Maybe if I come closer, what could possibly be the harm? And then in the second pane, it says 10,000 years later, and it shows a chihuahua, and it's been put in a little dress, and it's like dancing. <laughs> well, with that it. adorable image, because I think chihuahuas are cute, uh, in our mind, we'll return to, with our guests, uh, Adam, Aaron, Dr. David, and Joseph. Please stay with us. I'm Hertzie Hertz. You're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in to Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Hertzie Hertz, and we're in studio with Joseph, Adam, Aaron, Dr. David, and... Oh, right. Sorry. If you're curious about Minnesota Atheists, you can check out Minnesota Atheist websites. We have previous episodes. You can browse articles, book reviews, and peruse a calendar of upcoming events. And, for example, today we have a meeting at Southdale Library. Oh, is that good, Joseph? Sorry, we're, we didn't have our headphones on during this because everyone was on, but we do have Spencer from St. Paul who's curious about funding. Spencer, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning. Uh, yeah, that is the basis of my question. Uh, uh, with university funding and these research projects, I'd you know I'd like the guests to uh, you know make public who's who's generally funding these uh, this type of research. I would also like to know uh, who's funding this. Uh, I forget the name of the group you called yourself. That's you know separate from uh, the university itself. Uh, Universities have uh, become extremely dependent upon corporate funding, and uh, uh, on a, you know, on a program here that you know talks about religion or no religion, uh, you know, corporations do practice a religion, and that tends to be greed and uh, and and profits, and uh, they lack ethics, et cetera. And so, I'm, you know, that's a concern of mine. So, I'll let the guest speak to this. Thank you. Go right ahead, Professor. Sure. So, um, as I mentioned, uh, in my lab at the University of Minnesota, I do cancer research. 
much of the research that um, I do does involve the use of molecular biology, um, gene editing, and gene delivery technologies. And this research is funded in large part by the federal government through the National Institutes of Health, so specifically the National Cancer Institute. Um, I also receive funding from certain foundations that are interested in cancer. So, uh, for example, the American Cancer Society and the Children's Tumor Foundation. And the work that's being funded is really to, um, we're using this technology to better understand how cancer develops and try to get insight into how to treat it more effectively. So develop new drugs and new drug combinations to treat it, for example. Uh, some of the research in my lab and in other labs at the University of Minnesota is funded by, uh, by corporations, um, like you mentioned. So some of the research in my lab is funded by Genentech, a, pharmaceutical, a biopharmaceutical company in California. Um, and they're funding that research uh, because they hope that uh, by funding research at universities, they can do more than they could just do in their own laboratories in California. All of, the re all of these research agreements, though, are... Um, they're scrutinized by the university to make sure that they meet certain standards of openness and so on. So, for example, the research I do for that um, that's funded by the companies can't be um, hidden. They have to see they see it before I publish it. But that's as an example, and I'll let. Aaron or Adam talk about how the Genome Writers Guild is funded. As for the Genome Writers Guild, so uh, it's funded partially through membership dues and then a lot from just the fact that we run a conference every year and we're able to get um, a little bit from that. And we use that in order to run the conference next year and run satellite events and provide other different similar benefits th throughout the year. Um, and then we do get sponsors during our conference, just like anywhere else, just a sponsor that pays for their name to appear. Yeah, we do get corporate sponsors. Um, we usually list our corporate sponsors on the website, so you can go on to genomewritersguild.org and you can find them. Uh, we'll usually just put their logo somewhere. And um, they kind of pay to uh, attend the event and to kind of get their name going around the event. Because uh, they're aware too that uh, the um, some of these people at the events could be potential future employees, so that's kind of their incentive to help with the event. Okay, thank you, caller. That was an excellent question. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye. So, could you tell us about some of the limitations of your research? We've we've uh, been excited by the possibilities. What, um, what roadblocks do we have? What are the limitations of genetic engineering? So one key one uh, uh, is that we are kind of limited that we are doing one edit at a time. We're taking one step at a time, which means that we're not programming in the same way that you can program a computer. It takes, it takes time. Um, and the big one is that there is, it is much easier with modern gene editing technologies what we can do, but it still takes time to think about how you're going to design it, make sure that everything works properly before you go one step forward. So there is a big, a big time limitation in what, what it takes to actually get these things done. Another limitation is that genes are not always as simple as they might appear. They're not cut and paste. Sometimes um, some words can have multiple meanings, while some genes can do multiple things that are wildly different. And so there may be one thing that you want to target a trait for, but you can't 
make that edit in the gene because it would mess up something else. Dr. Largaspada uh, alluded earlier to um, the gene-edited babies in China with um, their modification to make them um, less susceptible to HIV also may make them more susceptible to other diseases. Uh, Professor, actually we have a couple minutes remaining. Um, perhaps you could be the best to answer this. Could you paint us a picture of the future as you can see it? Sure. So there is a developing field called synthetic biology where it will be possible someday to go ahead and, and program and plan out the entire sequence of the genome. So we talk, we're talking about making small edits today. In the future, it will be possible to write the whole genome and create a living organism from that. And that field of synthetic biology right now is limited to doing that kind of work in simple organisms like yeast. So there's a fascinating project where synthetic yeast chromosomes are being designed and used to replace the endogenous yeast chromosomes. Imagine being able to do that in more complex organisms. That's the future. And I generally think as a genetic engineer, if you're an engineer, in order to really understand a process, you have to be able to build it. If you claim to understand how bridges work, you better be able to build one <laughs> from scratch and see. And really, that's what we're going to be doing to understand how life works, how, how do organisms develop, how does, spe how does speciation occur. In theory, we could create intermediate species from the past mm -hmm. and recreate steps in evolution if we really want to understand it understand how developmental process works. So as a basic scientist, I kind of think about those things. But of course, if we can design, if we can create whole designer genomes, we'll be able to make, um, there'll be all sorts of practical applications. Um, I do want to address a concern that the public might have uh, after hearing that, the, that maybe these this synthetic speciation could get out and there are safeguards in place to keep that from happening. So with that and uh, finish up, thank you very much for coming out, joining us this week. Next week should be another exciting episode. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye.